can go ahead and uh, take your Bibles and open up to Romans chapter 2. And uh, we are continuing to move our way through the book of Romans. And uh, we're finding ourselves here in Romans chapter 2, kind of at the culmination of Paul's argument. Paul is prosecuting humanity. He is putting humanity on the stand, and he is proving the case that all of humanity stands guilty before God. He has made that clear about the Gentiles, and he is continuing to make that clear specifically as it relates to the Jews. And he's going to go after the Jews in a very specific way this morning. And by extension, maybe he's going to go after some of us. And I want to begin by asking you to imagine a scene with me, a scene that will one day be a reality for you and for me, for every single person. I want you to imagine the day of your death, the day where you pass confidently from this life into the next life. Confident because you believe you have done what is necessary to be in a right relationship with God. You believe you will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. On that day, you stand before Jesus, as Paul has said in this very chapter, who judges the secrets of your heart. But that's okay, because you believe He will reveal and expose all of the things that you have done for Him, and He will be pleased. But as you stand there in the presence of Jesus, something isn't right. Something doesn't feel right. What is being revealed is not what you expected. You see, only your sin, and you feel the increasing weight of guilt and shame, you sense the impending condemnation that you rightly deserve, and in a moment of panic, you try to plead your case. Lord, Lord, you say, trying to indicate a a level of intimacy that you, you genuinely believe you have. Look what I did, you say. I I prophesied in your name. I cast out demons in your name. I did many mighty works in your name. Unmoved by your words, Jesus looks at you and declares... I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Jesus says in Matthew 7, consider this, listen. In Matthew 7, after he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, after he preaches about what it means to be a part of his kingdom, Jesus says these words, and then he says this. He says that many, many people will experience this reality on that day. Not some, not a few, many. Many will believe that they have a genuine relationship with God only to find out in that moment that they do not. 
And the question that this text forces us to ask of ourselves is, how do I make sure that's not me? How do I make sure that that, that's not me? That moment in time when I stand before Jesus on that final day, how do I make sure that Jesus doesn't expose me as a fraud and doesn't point out that I don't have what I think I have? And really it comes down to understanding the difference between true religion and false religion. And Paul in Romans chapter 2 is speaking directly, again, to the religious Jews. And again, incidentally, to all other religious people who believe they are good with God, when in reality they're not. And he shows us, here's the good news, he shows us how we can be made right with God. But he also shows us in this this stunning section of God's Word, he shows us, listen, how close we can be to salvation, and yet how far we can be from salvation. And he's cutting through the veneer of false religion, and he's getting to the heart of true religion. And to do that, he first shows us this, listen, that false religion is defined by a hypocritical heart. False religion is defined by a hypocritical heart. I want to read from verse 17 through 24. Here's what Paul says. He says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, Do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Here, Paul goes right after the religious Jews, and he describes for us here a a hypocritical heart that puts trust in the wrong things. It puts trust in the form of religion, in the practice of religion, even in the perceived possession of religion. And it is a heart, ultimately, that has placed its confidence in the wrong things, and it produces wrong results. And we see here Paul identifying some realities of the religious Jews. He says a lot of good things, and he points to a lot of the the privileges that they had, and he doesn't condemn those or dismiss those, but he shows how they've taken something good, and they've done something very bad with it. He points out for us the reality of a hypocritical heart here, and he he shows us this first, that a a hypocritical heart can be seen uh, as possessing a false identity a false identity. Notice here that the claim being made as Paul has this argument with this hypothetical Jew, they first begin by declaring their identity. They call themselves a Jew. You can almost hear them making the argument, hey, I'm a Jew. I'm ethnically a Jew, and therefore I'm okay with God. God loves the Jewish people. We are God's chosen people. But you see, they have a false identity. They look at their status as a Jew, 
And by the way, we all do this. We all, we all have things that we run to and, and create a false identity. We, we make something that is sure an aspect of our identity. We take it as something that's secondary or even further down the line, and we make it primary. And we put our hope in it, that thing that makes us us, that gives us a sense of belonging and a sense of value. Religion and religious affiliation often provide this false identity for many. And here, Paul is saying that the Jews, they are making their identity all about their ethnicity. I'm a Jew. By the way, again, they they did have, as we see in this passage, as we've just read, they did have many unique and special privileges and advantages He acknowledges here that that what they have received is special, it is valuable, it is precious. It is not, however, their special privileges that will save them from judgment, and yet that is what they find their hearts clinging to in this moment, their Jewish heritage. Maybe if I can say it like this, I think this relates to all kinds of things, but privileges become problems when they become primary. And that's what the Jews had done with their ethnicity. Not only did they have this false identity, secondly, they had a false security. You notice what he says next? They're a Jew and they rely on the law and they boast in God. Some translations say they rest in the law. You can almost see it, right? That that the sense of, of peace they find is in possessing, in having the law of God. We are the people of God, and we have been given the law of God. God has spoken directly to us. Again, what a unique, special privilege and blessing. They possess the law, the codified law, written in history and given by God to His people, the law that exemplified God's perfect character. The law that was given to them, listen, in order to set them apart from all the other nations of the earth, to make sure they knew that they were different because the God they were supposed to serve was so different. The problem is that they relied upon the law as a source of justification. They saw that as their means of salvation. They believed that they could just simply obey the law, and they believed they could, that they could be saved. Their boast in God was not grounded in actually belonging to God. Their love for the law was discredited by their failure to live out the law. But it gets worse than that. You see, they had a false superiority. They know His will, it says, and they approve what is excellent. Because you are instructed from the law. They took great pains to know the law of God, to memorize the law of God, to meditate upon the law of God. That's the irony of this passage. And notice this verse 19. If you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor or a teacher of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. By the way, all those things were true. What a privilege. They were supposed to instruct others. They were supposed to point others to God and to His kindness and to His salvation. But privileges become problems when they become primary. 
Many Jews, they looked down their nose at those they were supposed to humbly instruct in the ways of God. One of the most stunning indictments of the Jews, the Pharisees in particular, was from Jesus in Matthew 23, verse 15. He says to them, listen to this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, sorry, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. You're running around teaching people how to be sons of hell, not sons of God. And these advantages that the Jews had only increased, by the way, their obligation to do what's right, and it increased their condemnation if they did not. There is a unique, listen, a unique accountability before God. We are more accountable based on the amount of revelation we receive. The Jews have been given the law. They've been given everything, and they prided themselves in knowing the law and instructing other people. They had this false superiority And the truth is, is that we find identity, security, and superiority in religion, and as a result, we embrace this. Listen, this is what he's getting to, false reality. A false reality. This is the essence of hypocrisy right here. A failure to see who you truly are. And Paul exposes here the the false reality of heartless religion. He exposes the reality of their position by asking some some heart-penetrating questions. You who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, but do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. This is a wake-up call he's giving them. And the short and simple of it is that we often do the very same things we condemn. Isn't it, isn't it true when you read a passage like this, it's easy to look at somebody else and say, oh, I know lots of people who are hypocrites, but the reality is this text forces us to examine our own lives and to come to this conclusion. Every one of us, to a degree, is a hypocrite. Amen? And isn't it, it's ironic, too, the way the hypocrisy often works. Isn't it true that we often rail against and condemn, you see this all the time, rail against and condemn most vehemently the very things you struggle most with? And you want to know one of the reasons I think we do that? I think we're inclined to do that because we somehow think, you know, out of guilt and shame, if we can condemn with passion the very things we struggle with, maybe that will assuage our conscience. Maybe that will make us feel better because we really do hate it. But the problem is it only increases the conviction we feel, or, or scarily, it dulls our conscience, and we fail to see that we are the ones who need to hear the message most. Paul says, you run around declaring what's right, but not doing what's right. And the worst part is you think it's okay. That is to live a false reality. And false religion is defined by this kind of a hypocritical heart, this kind of a false reality. But the frightening reality that Paul points out is that you can actually possess. This is scary. Listen, church, you need to hear this. You can actually possess all of the key privileges and elements of true religion, but in reality be trapped in false religion. And many in the church have fallen into the very same trap. There are many 
maybe even in this room, who've grown up in the church, they've got good families, they read the Bible, they went to Awana, they memorized the scriptures, they went to youth group, they professed Christ, Christ at a young age, and they were even homeschooled. They walk like a Christian, they talk like a Christian, but guess what? They're not a Christian. There are many, and history attests to this, many who have gone out to save the world only to find out that they themselves were not saved. One incredible example of this is John Wesley. If you know anything about church history, you know that John Wesley is a a very famous figure. John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist movement, and he was one of the greatest preachers that England had ever seen. During his early life, um, he went to Oxford. He and some friends there, uh, George Whitfield, that may be another name you may be familiar with, and his brother Charles Wesley, they started a, a club with some of their friends, and they called it the Holy Club. Now, if you want to make sure you don't have any friends in school, um, start a club and call it the Holy Club. That's, that'll make you really cool. Their desire was to be as holy as possible, hence the name the Holy Club. They read their Bible every day. They were fervent about religious things. John Wesley was so strict with practicing religion. In his journal, listen, listen to what he wrote. He wrote about how, how holy he was and the kind of pursuits that he was, he was chasing after. He, he was so holy, he said this in his journal, that he would not converse with the opposite sex nor eat highly seasoned meats. I read that. I'm like, oh, I'm in big trouble. I love highly seasoned meats. And he wrote this, listen, he, he, he wrote, he's got married, he's practicing all of these things, he's trying to make himself as holy as possible, and he wrote this in his journal. He went on a missions trip to America to preach the gospel to the natives, and he says this, I left my native country to teach the Indians the nature of Christianity, but what have I learned in the meantime? That I, the least of all suspected, that I who went to America to convert others was never converted myself. And it wasn't until he was back home, he went to a little a gathering of Christians, and he heard somebody talking about the reality that you're saved not by works but by faith. And in a little meeting, someone, this is amazing, someone was reading Martin Luther's introduction to the book of Romans, and something clicked, and he understood the gospel, and he understood that you could be saved only by faith and not by works. And he says this in his journal, at that moment, my heart was strangely warmed. Verse 23, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Listen, listen, loved ones, this this is part of the point of, of why Paul is writing this, because it's so easy to be deceived. It's easy to be deceived, especially in a Christian bubble, isn't it? We, we, we live and exist oftentimes in a Christian bubble, and it's easy to convince ourselves of something that may not actually be true. We have this kind of assumed Christianity, almost like a cultural Christianity. D.A. Carson, he, he once said this, he said, one generation believed the gospel, the next generation assumes the gospel, the next generation loses the gospel. 
And I think many of us are in that middle section where we have assumed the gospel. We've been around Christianity for so long. We've grown up with it. And we just assume that we're Christians because we've been around it so much and we can do the Christian kind of thing. And there are two symptoms, by the way, I think, of this kind of assumed Christianity. There's legalism. There's always, you know, you, you know what to do. You know the rules. You f- enforce the rules, and you usually don't follow the rules. <laughs> but the other side of that pendulum is licentiousness. That is, there's a license to sin. I'm saved, so I can sin. I can do whatever I want. Grace is, is, is full and free. I'll go sin my brains out because God and His grace is so much greater. You see how you can manipulate the truth and twist it to your own advantage? So on one side, you have the legalist who condemns everyone while living in hidden sin, and then the other side, you have those who claim Christ while living in willful sin. You know, the willful, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but I, I'll, you know, I'll continue to sleep with my girlfriend. I'm a Christian, but I'll continue to live for the world. False religion renders us incapable of having a relationship with God or rightly representing God. And the whole idea that if I obey, I will be accepted and approved by God, this this attitude actually renders you incapable of having a genuine, intimate relationship with God. That's why so many people who think they're saved but don't understand why they have no actual relationship, there's no warmth in their heart towards God. They don't sense any kind of intimate relationship with God. Here's why. Most, most, listen, Most likely, it's because you have embraced a legalistic form of religion, which in reality is false religion. It can't make you right. It can't make you okay with God. It can't produce a relationship with God, and it cannot make you capable of representing God. Heartless religion does more damage than good. All the knowledge that you accumulate becomes purely intellectual. It becomes fodder for debate. And our culture sees this far too often, don't they? They see expressions of Christianity that do so much damage to the reputation of God and the reputation of the church. Heartless religion is all form and it's no substance. It's the veneer without the reality. And it brings you nothing and it only dishonors God's reputation. And that's why he says in verse 24, causing, listen to this, it says, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul reaches back into the book of Isaiah, chapter 52, a section of Scripture where where the people of God were actually in exile, and and the reason they were in exile is because of their sin and the rebellion against God. And, And in God's judgment, He has them brought off into captivity, into exile, and it was a mark of God's judgment It was a mark of their sinfulness. And here's the irony, that because of their sin and because of their exile, while they're living, listen, in hostile territory, they're kicked out of the land, they've got no ability to be in God's presence in the temple, here's the reality. The nation that they're in looks at them and says, your God is worthy of being worshipped? Look at you. Look at you. You live in sin. Look at you. Your God's not even powerful enough to keep you, not only from sin, to keep you in your own land. Look at our, our gods are greater than your gods. Do you see how this reverses the very intention that God had for the nation of Israel? The whole point was they're supposed to be in the land, faithful to God, so that they can keep pointing the other nations, surrounding nations, to the one and true living God. And instead, 
the nations laugh. Church, how often does our hypocrisy make us and our God look like a joke to the watching world? And the reason this is happening so often is that what is promoted as true religion is actually false religion. It is defined by a hypocritical heart. And it's powerless because it's ultimately, listen, self-serving, it's self-promoting, it's man-centered, it's a shell of the real thing. It seeks to use God for our own ends. But listen, here's the good news. Contrary to false religion, we have here a picture of true religion. And in this next section, we see that true religion is defined by a transformed heart. Listen to what he says in verse 25 through 29. For circumcision, indeed, is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but the Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. I was joking with the elders this morning as we were praying. I was like thinking about this section here, and I was like, I wonder if when Paul wrote this, he was laughing, thinking about the preachers who were going to have to say circumcision ten times in twenty seconds. But you see what his point is, right? You see what he's getting at, don't you? The Jews believed that they were secure because they were part of God's chosen people. Okay, fine, maybe we break the law. Maybe we're not perfect. You can hear them kind of arguing back with Paul. At least we have circumcision. We are part of God's covenant family. God has made a covenant with us. You see, the Jews believed that circumcision, they they had come to believe that circumcision actually was a means by which they were saved. Listen to some of this commentary by some, um, some rabbis. Rabbi Menachem, in his commentary in the book of Moses, wrote this. He said, our rabbis have said that no circumcised man will see hell. Another said this, circumcision saves from hell. The Midrash Talim says this, God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised should be sent to hell. The problem is, none of those statements are in the Bible. They believe that circumcision somehow secured salvation, an external mark on the body, and they failed to understand the purpose of circumcision. They didn't understand it. They didn't realize what it was pointing towards. And Paul tells us exactly what it was pointing towards, and he helps us understand true religion, and he says this, listen, true religion is proved by the internal, not the external. At the end of the day, as much as we, listen, if there's no fruit, there's no root. What matters most is that there is actually root. (laughs) Because here's the truth, it's easy to fake some fruit, Right? You, you can walk around with fake fruit for a very long time, even in the Christian life. You can make it look like you're a Christian. It's actually not that hard. But what proves you have embraced true religion is what's inside ultimately, and that cannot ultimately be hidden. 
So Paul moves to the issue of religious identity here. Circumcision, he says, is only of value if you keep the law. He's making this argument, and he's doing it very rapidly for us. You see, the Jews thought at the end of the day, even if I I haven't kept the law, at least I'm circumcised, I'm in the covenant. And so what Paul is doing here, listen, he's knocking down their last bastion of hope. He's knocking down their last bastion of identity, of security, and of superiority, and he is undermining their confidence. He is kicking the legs right out from underneath them. The act of circumcision is intended to be a picture of what would happen if you did not keep the covenant. There's, there's layers to understanding the, the, the symbol of circumcision. One, it reminded them, yes, that they were part of the people of God. It reminded them of the promise of God to bring about one through the line of Abraham who would ultimately be a blessing to the nation. We know Paul talks about this being Jesus. But it was also a reminder that they were in a covenant with God. But listen, listen, it was reminding them that in this covenant, there were covenant stipulations that they were required to obey the law. They had to keep the law. But circumcision reminded them that they actually had no ability to keep the law. So it's it's layered. It's, It's kind of layered in its symbolism. But it actually instructed them on what was supposed to happen to them, catch this, if they did not keep the law. Paul draws this out for us in Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. Listen to what he says. He says, he says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. If that's what you're putting your faith in, you've got to keep all the stipulations, okay? You are, listen to this, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. You see the imagery, that word severed there, right? When you think of circumcision, you should think, ouch, but, but do you see what Paul's saying? He's saying, if, if that's what you're putting your hope in, here's, the, here's what this points to. If you believe you can be justified by keeping the law, in actuality, in reality, you will be cut off from God. It can't save you. And so by the very nature of the, the covenant symbol of circumcision, God's people were admitting a willingness, listen, to be cut off from God should they fail to meet the stipulations of the covenant circumcision, Paul says here in this passage, only has value if you observe the law, if you keep the law. But if you have been physically circumcised, Paul goes on to say, you failed to keep the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. Look at verse 26 and verse 27. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. You see, he's getting to the heart of the matter. And it's a matter of the heart. True spiritual profit in God's eyes is found in obedience to him. He's not impressed by the external shows of religion. Verse 28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward in physical but a Jew is one inwardly, he says. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. 
True religion is proved not by the external show, but the internal reality. A new heart that loves God. You say, what is this new heart exactly that is needed? It is a heart that loves God, that loves His Word, that loves holiness and flees sin, but recognizes the inability to do this apart from God's divine intervention, apart from God's grace and God's help. This is not describing, by the way, the perfection of our life, but it is describing the dominating affection and the obvious direction of our lives. But let me say it again. It needs to be said. It needs to be said in our day and age. It needs to be said in our church. It needs to be said in every church. It is so easy to fool others, to do all the right things, to, to play the part, to wear the mask. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, somebody had said, you know, people have been wearing masks to church for a long time. What's the problem now? <laughs> for those of you who hate wearing the mask, I apologize. But, but listen, isn't that, it's, it's true. It's sad, but it's true. What's scary is that it's so easy to, to be fooled ourselves. There are many earnest, confident, religious people who will ultimately be lost in the end. Many will be shocked to hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you. Many, the Bible says. Your religious affiliation, listen, your baptism, your church membership, your church attendance, all the boxes that you tick, as good as they may be in some regard, listen, they have no saving power. Circumcision was never meant to justify anyone. It had no ability to do so. It was only an external sign reminding them of who they were, what was required, what they deserved, ultimately pointing them to what was truly needed. They missed it. They missed that they needed a transformed heart. And many people playing the Christian game miss that that's exactly what they need as well. That's produced here, secondly, by the Spirit, not the law. This is what the law is getting at. He's not saying that anybody can keep the law. Notice what he says here. It's a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His point is that no one apart from God's intervening work can keep the law. Nobody can justify themselves. Nobody can earn a righteous standing before God. Nobody can merit it in their own strength. Theoretically, even if the Gentile keeps the law, he's better than you, Paul says. Because it demonstrates the inner reality of his heart. It demonstrates that there has been a transformation that's taken place in his heart. You see, how, how were the Jews supposed to know what exactly uh, physical circumcision was pointing towards? How, how did they know, how, how, or, or should they have known, that it was pointing beyond the physical to the spiritual realm? Should they have known that? The answer is actually, yes, they should have known. You say, how? The law. <laughs> The law that they love, the law that they read. I mean, notice these scriptures. Let me throw them on the screen for you. Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. Look at this next one in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. 
Jeremiah 4, verse 4 says this, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. You see, through and through, the Old Testament screamed to the people of God their need for a radical transformation of the heart. And circumcision of the heart, it seems like a strange concept, doesn't it? But it's not that strange when you understand what's taking place. You see, physical circumcision was evidence that you had been born physically into the family of God, the the Jewish people, the, the family of God. But that's not what saved them. It never did. It pointed them towards a need for a new heart. It pointed them that they actually needed to be born, spiritually speaking, into the family of God. It's like what Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You see, being born spiritually into the family of God was what made them a true Jew, that is, a saved Jew, somebody who was actually a part of God's family. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, the new heart, the clean heart, the heart in which the Holy Spirit dwells, that is the thing that proclaims we are truly Christian. And while Paul hasn't gotten there yet, we know how this new heart comes about. It's not obedience to the law. It has to be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. It has to be done through Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 2. He says this, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him, Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. You see, Christ was cut off for us. He took what we deserve. And each one of us must consider this question, where, where does our confidence lie this morning? Does it rest in our knowledge of God's Word, in our religious affiliations, in our religious activity. If it does, listen, we've deluded ourselves. True religion and true salvation are a matter of the heart. That's why Paul will write later in Romans chapter 10 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, listen, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. It is produced by the Spirit of God powerfully working in your heart by producing, listen, conviction over sin, by producing in you a conviction over the reality that you can't save yourself, but you desperately need to be saved from your sins. And some of you sitting here today, you know, you know you've been living a lie. You know you've been a hypocrite. You know you have no true relationship with God. Some of you today maybe are realizing it for the very first time. You were self-deceived. You're an unconscious hypocrite. You say, well, what do I do today? Today, you do exactly what the Bible says. You don't wait. 
right now today, if the Spirit of God is convicting you over your sin, if you know you are in desperate need of a Savior, bow the knee to Jesus right now. Right now. Say, God, you have to give me a new heart. You have to change my heart. You have to give me faith to believe. God, help me to believe. Embrace Jesus as Lord and Master. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Take the mask off and come to Jesus. Lastly, true religion is defined by a transformed heart that is praised by the Lord, not man. This is the heart of true religion, right here. He closes this section by saying his praise is not from man, but from God. Human beings are are comfortable with what is outward and visible, with what's material and superficial. What matters to God is deep, inward, secret working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. False religion, listen, is obsessed about what man thinks. True religion is obsessed with what God thinks. Paul said it matters very little to me or, or what you think of me or even how I think of myself. What matters is what God thinks of me. This desire is the mark of one who has been truly transformed from the inside out. True religion longs for praise from God. True religion longs to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, knowing that in the end, that is all that will matter. I want you to imagine the scene with me. It's the day of your death where you pass confidently from this life into the next. Confident not because you believe you have done what is necessary to be in a right relationship with God. Confident because you believe He has done what is necessary. And on that day you stand before Jesus who judges the secrets of your heart. But that's okay. Because He has given you a new heart. A transformed heart that lives for His praise and will live forever to His praise. And you stand before Jesus and you hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would hear this. We pray that we would receive this. We pray that we would respond to this, Lord, this morning. God, for those of us who have the confidence of the gospel, who have truly been transformed from the inside out, Lord, we give you praise and honor We pray that you would help us to live for your praise and honor. God, for those who are living a lie and are living in hypocrisy, God, I pray that you would give them grace even in this moment to take the mask off, to humble themselves before you, to repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ. And God, we pray that our hearts would respond, all of us together in unison, to the praise and honor and glory of you, our God, the only one who could justify, the only one who can save. Receive our praise now from grateful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.